are thankful for the occasion to meet and uh, deal with difficult literature and difficult concepts, uh, but nonetheless, they speak to the majesty of uh, the redemption accomplished by our great uh, triune God. Uh, continue to bless us as we learn and grow and uh, prosper our faith and our sense of worship. Uh, for the glory of Christ, we ask an amen. So again, uh, I want to remind you of the title, Redemption Accomplished. We're in the accomplished section. It's very difficult for most Christians to grasp the concept that um, the work of redemption um, was accomplished by Christ. Nothing was left undone. Okay? Um, we think of contingency. Well, I have to do something. Uh, um, but God doesn't deal in contingencies because He's God. And whatever He does is a perfect work. And He's going to make sure uh, that what He has accomplished past time is going to be applied in the present and future. So uh, the title here, I think, is somewhat helpful. Accomplished and Applied. Uh, let's deal, for example, very quickly with a non-Christian who comes to faith. Uh, that's an expression of the application of redemption. Uh, uh, if you think think back to some of my previous comments, men who are spirit or women, speaking generically, men who are spiritually dead have no ability to believe. So the spirit births them in the new birth. Okay, John three, uh, lots of well, lots of scripture, but John three is a preeminent passage. Uh, now we must be born again. A product of the new birth, uh, uh, regeneration, is faith, obedience, all all of the aspects of the application of redemption. Uh, in regeneration, we do not cooperate because dead men can't cooperate. Okay? In uh, a future, a, 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 an additional aspect of our sanctification, of our redemption, which is our sanctification, we do cooperate because we've been made alive. So we come to church, we pray, we all the things of the means of grace, but. Just keep in mind, accomplished and applied. Uh, okay, so last time we dealt with um, the necessity of the atonement. Uh, there has to be atonement. We could be saved in no other way. There is no other way. Uh, let's review very quickly. Because God is a God of absolute perfection, it takes an absolute perfect sacrifice. Okay, which is the sacrifice of Christ, particularly the incarnate Christ, the God-man. Uh, he was fully divine and fully human. One person, okay, one person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, uh, but he has two natures, um, divine and human. The sacrifice must be divine because uh, it has to be rendered to a uh, to a perfect uh, God and Father. Okay, God doesn't accept anything less than perfection because He is perfect. 
Okay, so he's not going to accept imperfection. That's the necessity of the atonement because Christ is the perfect uh, uh, second member of the Trinity. Okay, uh, and and it's essential as a Christian that you understand as difficult as it is the concept of the Trinity. Okay, uh, there are three persons in the Godhead. There's one God, but that one God is composed of three eternal uh, uh, persons. Um, and each uh, engages our salvation. Uh, the Son engages our redemption. Uh, the perfections of his, divinity, of his divinity and then a humanity because he has to represent the first Adam who was man who fell. Because man fell, man must secure salvation. Well, who can do that? No, no one can do that except the God-man. The necessity of the atonement. Uh, all faiths or religions or whatever that deny the Trinity seal their own doom because uh, they can't save themselves. They need someone to represent them. That's who Christ is. He's our high priest and He represents us before the throne of eternity. Okay? Uh, all faiths or religions that deny uh, the second person of the Trinity, seal their doom. Because they have no sacrifice. Okay? There has to be sacrifice. That's the necessity of the atonement. Has to be. Okay? Uh, and God doesn't take chump change. He only takes perfection. Okay? So, that's why we looked at um, um, uh, the divinity of the Son John 1, in, in, in the beginning, an allusion to Genesis 1, Christ was present at the creation. How could he have been, pre, been, been present at the creation unless he was God? Okay? Uh, you know, by the way, I want to remind you of something. This is occurring even in the Christian church. People are, be, are beginning to hold the Old Testament suspect, particularly the alternative lifestyle people, because the Old Testament's very, very harsh on alternative lifestyles. So they want to jettison the Old Testament because you start reading the book of Leviticus, for example, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. They don't want to be in trouble, so they just begin to jettison it. Uh, but there, again, two, two, two testaments, they're both the Word of God. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, that's an allusion to Genesis 1, which says, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. Okay? Uh, uh, Christ came, He was full of grace and truth. How can you be full of truth if you're less than divine? Uh, John 10, what, 30, I and the Father are one. I told you last time that the one is in, is, is, is in the neuter uh, of, of, uh, of uh, the Greek uh, language, which means one essence. So, you know, the Father, the Son, and Spirit all have the same substance. Uh, so let's look at the nature of the atonement. Um, uh, the nature of the atonement is begins to grapple with a uh, difficult question for most people today with what Christ did on the cross. Okay, What did he do? What did it accomplish? The underlying principle of the atonement is obedience, both active and passive. Okay, What do we mean by Christ's active obedience? Okay. We mean that he obeyed when he came as the God-man to the earth, 
He subjected himself to all of the law of God and actively obeyed everything. Okay? He obeyed all of the law. Um, uh, so he was a sacrifice of perfect obedience. Okay? Uh, you know, just as a, as a reminder, uh, uh, the unman, the, the unsaved individual uh, has no ability to obey the law of God uh, perfectly. Okay. So, but uh, God the Son can because He's divine uh, as well as human. So He obeys all the law. That's Christ's active obedience. Throughout His life, from birth to death, um, uh, He... He lived a life of perfect obedience. So, generally, most Christians don't think in terms of our Savior's active obedience, but we, you know, we 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 must and we should, because it helps us understand the atonement. Um, passive obedience is his sufferings on the cross. Okay, totally on his in his behalf, totally undeserved, totally unmerited, but he suffers. Uh, uh, the entire uh, vagaries of the terrors of the cross in his humanity um, uh, by passively suffering on the cross. Okay. Um, uh, here it's helpful, I think, to understand his two natures. Uh, Christ goes to the cross and dies on the cross. His divinity did not die. Divinity can't die. God cannot die. If God can die, He's mutable. We studied in pink that God is immutable. So Christ's divinity did not die. What died? His humanity died. Humanity can die. His humanity was crucified, buried, and then He was resurrected. Okay? But Christ's divinity is immutable, can never change. So that's the majesty of the atonement that God would submit Himself by taking upon Himself uh, human nature and go to the cross. So when He's on the cross, uh, He's suffering um, um, intensely uh, because He never broke. You and I break. We get tempted, and we, you know, and then then we break. Christ never broke. Okay. Um, th- uh, I just want to remind you very quickly of the two natures. When when Jesus says, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" Uh, uh, he's saying that as an expression of his humanity, because God the Father never forsook God, the divinity of God the Son. It was his humanity that that God the Father turns his back on and leaves, not his divinity. Yeah. Christ was always God, always one and present with the Father. But it was his humanity. Uh, so he's forsaken his humanity, and the terrors of that uh, terrorized the humanity of the Son. Okay. Uh, so, um, yes, sir? I'll say that again? No, no, we don't believe he went to hell. Uh yeah, I mean, that's a good question, uh, and it's raised a lot. Um, um, 
different interpretations. I've forgotten. I, I, I was fond of Calvin's view when I read his Institutes. Um, but, uh, but it can be taken in different ways. But I don't think there's any scriptures whatsoever that speak to uh, uh, God the Son actually going to hell. Uh, uh, it, it could very well be a reference to coming to this fallen earth and suffering the vagaries of hell. Okay. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. Well, but, 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 but if, if I understand what you're saying about Sproul is correct, he suffered spiritual hell, not literal hell. Yeah. So does that make sense, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, good, good, uh, good question. Um, uh, herein are the accomplishment, disposition, will, and volition of these formal acts of obedience. Thus Christ was fully equipped so as to constitute a perfect Savior uh, and affect all of the requirements of His commission. By obedience, He secured our salvation and we have union and communion with Him. Okay. So what are His... Uh, so what did He do on the cross? Well, if you look at... Um, Roman numeral 1B1, sacrifice. Okay? Sin involves liability, and sacrifice removes the liability. Okay? When Christ is, sacrifices Himself on the cross, He is removing the liability of our sin. Okay? Uh, because the liability is transferred to God the Son. Okay? Uh, that's why we refer to the atonement as substitutionary atonement. He, 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 he was our substitute. And what was due us, the liability of the wrath of God was transferred to the Son. Okay. Um, Christ is also a priest. Uh, so he's our high priest who, um, who represents us. So again, substitution. Propitiation is a theological term. So B2. The basic idea is to cover the sin so as to cleanse and affect forgiveness before the Lord. Um, has the idea to placate, to pacify, or appease. Um, I like another uh, synonym, uh, namely satisfaction. He satisfies uh, our, uh, our liability. Uh, and propitiation, if, if you think satisfaction, substitutionary atonement, satisfaction of wrath, then propitiation is presupposing um, wrath. Okay? Why is there wrath? Because God's an eternal God. Uh, we've broken His law, and, and, and there is immediate liability, so God the Son comes. Okay? Uh, so propitiation removes wrath. Okay, let's let's turn to some verses at Romans three twenty five. Um, it's good for us to talk about these things, but uh, I don't mean much unless uh, scriptures validate it. Uh, 
Uh, so Romans 3.25 Uh, if you look at the last part of verse 24, which is in Christ Jesus, whom, reference to Christ, God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Okay? Um, As a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins Previously committed. Okay, so in the Old Testament, uh, there was no perfect sacrifice. There were these animal sacrifices anticipating the coming of the last final sacrifice. Uh, you know, just, just review very quickly. Uh, Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, uh, yeah, Moses, um, they they were looking forward to salvation. And in that sense, they're saved in the same way we are, the blood of Christ. Okay? And they knew, uh, they knew that the sacrificial system set up in the book of Leviticus and referenced, you know, lots of other books, but uh, set up by God were to anticipate, okay, a greater blood sacrifice. Uh, the shedding of bulls and goats can't save. They didn't save in the Old Testament either. What saves is the blood of Christ. So Old Testament saints uh, had a, uh, uh, if you will, less than perfect understanding that God someday would send a perfect sacrifice anticipated by the entire Levitical system. They were looking forward. With the coming of the New Testament, um, we have... Uh, uh, more knowledge which give us greater understanding. And we look back to the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. Does that make sense? Okay. But, but, but it's, key, it's, it's, it's important for you to recognize that even though there's two dispensations, people aren't saved in different ways. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. True in the Old Testament, True in the new. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, just to remind you, you know, it's Luke chapter 4, I think. Uh, there is salvation in no other name. For there's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. No other name. Not Moses. Not um, um, the father of Mormonism. Uh, not some. Hindu priest. Uh, there's, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. That no other name excludes everyone and everything else but God the Son. Okay. Um, you know, just you know, it reminds you this opens this opens a measure of a door for us to witness. Uh, to people other than uh, uh, Christians. Okay? Um, um, it's a challenge, you know, you come across uh, a Muslim 
you share that verse with them, they're, they're going to get a little bit angry and they're going to probably reject what you're saying, but you never know. God saves Muslims too. You know, because He's able to save. He can save Mormons, Hindus, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, okay? But how does He save anyone? By faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, I had a I used to have a neighbor since uh, passed away. There was a Christian scientist. So you know we, you know neighbors, you become friends over time, and you know, um, they'd share an apple pie, and I'd share peanuts. I can't bake very well. I mean, I don't know what it was, but I just, you know, you befriend people, do things for them. Uh, so one day I told him, I, one day I, you know, I recognized, well, here's, got to have an opportunity to share the faith with this guy. And he was a devout Christian scientist. Okay. Not, you don't find very many devout Christian scientists today. Uh, that was a very, by the way, that was a very popular religion in the early part of the 20th century. Okay. Very popular. Uh, the intellectuals. Okay. Uh, uh, I live in a city called Nichols Hills. There used to be a fairly large Christian science ch church not very far from my home. It's very popular. He, belong he went to that church. Uh, since clothes been totally torn down because uh, people just don't, you know, they're not attracted to it anymore. Uh, which I think is proper because it offers no real hope. Mary Baker Eddy, uh, her name is not found in the New Testament. She cannot save. And it's very interesting, as you know, they, uh, they believe in a concept of healing. Uh, my neighbor died of cancer. So whatever Mary Baker Eddy did for him, she didn't do enough. Christ does enough because of who He is. So, um, forgive me for getting off. Uh, propitiation, uh, He satisfies sin. So, Romans 3.25. Um, let's look at 1 John 2.2. 2. Uh, this verse is cited oftentimes as a... Uh, Invitation uh, to forgiveness. Uh, if I can ever get there. Uh, let's, let's read verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Okay, that's one of the offices of Christ. He was our attorney. You get in legal trouble, hire an attorney. Okay? Because he'll, he'll represent you before a judge. Okay? Uh, judges, uh, unless it's small claims court, okay, won't, won't let anyone but an attorney represent, uh, clients. If, uh, at least that's my experience. There may be some unusual circumstance, but, uh, that's the kind of the genius of small claims court. You don't need to hire an attorney. But you go to any other higher court than that, you've got to have an attorney. 
Okay? And attorneys uh, are much more successful at arguing the law before a judge who himself is a lawyer than, than, than you do. So Christ is our lawyer before God. And guess what? God always, God the Father always accepts what God the Son, the preeminent lawyer of all time, uh, uh, does for his clients. Okay? That's the genius of God the Son. He does perfection for his clients, and God the Father agrees all the time. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Again, you understand my interpretation of world. Uh, it's all men without um, um, uh, distinction. Uh, men, in that sense, in a generic term. Uh, uh, all men without uh, distinction including men, women, uh, children, slaves, free, uh, on and on. So there's no distinction. Again, in, think of it in this way. In the Old Testament, you had, you had to be an ethnic Jew or become an ethnic or become, come under uh, ethnic Judaism. There was no other way in the Old Testament. Only one way. Gentiles could become Jews spiritually but they had to accept the sacrificial system okay, and obey Old Testament law. Uh, so uh, um, it's, good, it's good, to, uh, good, to, good to understand those things. When you come to the New Testament, that's scrapped. No longer have to be a Jew. Uh, no longer do you have to uh, adopt the Old Testament sacrificial system. Why? Because Christ fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system. He fulfilled it perfectly. You know, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world or all men without uh, distinction. Okay. Okay. Um, Let's look very quickly at uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay. Uh, by the way, I remind you, and you know this, look, look down at verse 19, we love because He loved us first. Men outside of Christ can love in a pagan sense, uh, but not, uh, not in terms of Christian brotherhood and loving God. Uh, so God, God loves us first. Uh, reconciliation. Uh, B3. Sin alienates us uh, before God. Okay? Um, so um, there's this eternal chasm uh, between us and God because of our sin. Okay? God doesn't uh, walk with sinners. God the Father. Uh, so Christ comes and He reconciles us. Uh, and reconciliation is the method to restore the favor. 
Reconciliation presupposes enmity. Okay? Uh, all of us in this room, I, I presume, have had maybe a legal problem with someone. Uh, or, or who knows, maybe a moral problem. I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, well, it's the same with God. We had, God had, had a problem with us. Christ reconciles that. He fixes it. Okay? Um, he, uh, uh, he removes the ground of alienation. Notice it's He. Not, uh, not us cooperating with Him. Only, only God the Son can remove the ground of alienation because it's eternal and infinite and only an eternal, infinite person can remove that which is eternal and infinite. And, and the cross is God's provision and accomplishment. Notice, provision and accomplishment. And we receive it by faith. So let's look at uh, um, a couple of texts. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 5. So again, we're going to the New Testament. It's all well and good to cite the theology of all this, but it's uh, it's uh, meaningless apart from the scriptures. Uh, Romans um, five eight to eleven. But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were pardon me, verse ten. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So the point of Paul and the point of Murray is there's alienation. Christ cures it. Okay? Um, he, he pays the bill. Reconciles us. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. You know, by the way, I, I want to stress this over and over again. When we read Christ here, we're not reading Christ plus. We're reading Christ alone. Paul doesn't say um, Christ and Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith reconciles no one because he cannot and he did not because he rejected the eternal eternality of God the Son. Uh, he's paying eternally in time. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Uh, Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul has the ministry of it as an apostle, uh, but um, 
God reconciles us through Christ. I remind you again, if you understand total depravity, we are unable to reconcile ourselves. Okay. Think of it this way. Um, um, you owe shopkeeper A $1,000. You haven't paid him. Shopkeeper A goes and hires an attorney and a judge. And the judge says, yeah, there was a valid contract between you guys and pay the $1,000. You don't have $1,000. Okay. So there's enmity, right? The shopkeeper is upset. Okay. Uh, Christ goes into the courtroom, faces God the Father, and says, uh, here's 40 quadrillion dollars in my person that died upon the cross. I'm using a reference to dollars as a figure of speech. He pays the bill. The enmity is cured. Okay? It's cured. Nothing is left uncured by God the Son on the cross. Okay? If there was one thing that was left uncured, no one can ever be saved. Because God the Father can't be satisfied. He cures it. It's important you understand the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. Uh, so, um, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world, again, all men without distinction, Okay, men, women, slaves, free, Jews, Gentiles, okay, all men without distinction to himself. Not Notice the language, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of re reconciliation. Okay, With the sacrifice of Christ, totally cured. You know, by the way, uh, uh, you and I, because we are still fallen, we're not totally depraved, we're still fallen, we still sin. He died for that sin too on the cross. Your future sins. Because He cured it all. If there was anything left uncured, then you must be saved over and over and over and over again. And all the language, for example, of the New Testament, certainly the book of Hebrews, is totally meaningless. If you recall, we read last week, one sacrifice for all time. He cured it all. Okay. Now, I don't want to get into license. You know, that's a subject different time. Uh, a lot of people throw rocks at us by saying, well, if that's true, then go out and sin all the more. No, that's, you know, because he just doesn't, reconcile, He sets in motion your sanctification, which is going to change you. Uh, so God doesn't leave us unchanged. Okay? God doesn't provide a work and then say, well, you know, good luck. I hope you make it. Uh, he's going to affect change in our lives. So, But that's a future chapter for Murray uh, understanding. He's going to affect change. Okay. Um, um, so he is, he is, he has reconciled us, not counting our trespasses against us. 
Most people, most Christians today, well-meaning, you know, uh, kind and gracious, well-meaning say, well, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he, he paid for all my past sins, but future sins, um, uh, I, I, I've got to, I've got to do something. You, violates the language here. Uh, he sent Christ to, to pay the bill. Even for future sins. Um, if there are sins yet untoned for, no one can be saved. Because liability occurs. Christ has cured it. Now I suspect for some of you, maybe not all of you, that's a totally different view of the atonement than you have ever heard. But go back and look at that language. Not counting their trespasses against us. That, that's true for us. Past, present, and future. It has to be future. Or we have to be saved all over again. Okay. So that's the perfections of the atonement. Okay, So redemption uh, brings, uh, brings us... Um, uh, to number four, redemption. The, the word is from the language of purchase and ransom. It's the release by the payment of a price. Let's turn to Mark uh, chapter 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, for many, okay? Those whom the Father gave him to die for. A ransom. Okay, it's uh, um, redemption presupposes bondage from sin. It breaks uh, it breaks our bondage from the curse of the law, the ceremonial law, and from law works as a condition. It breaks the bondage of guilt and power. Okay, it also pays the bill because Christ is the purchase price. Uh, anybody in this ever, room ever gone to a pawn shop and hawked something? Well, I, I haven't either, but you know the concept. You need some money. Uh, you take your uh, your wife's prized over and under shotgun to the pawn shop, and you, unbeknownst to her, you you give it to the shopkeeper and you and you hawk it. He gives you uh, uh, you know a few dollars for it, um, and uh, uh, you can redeem it by going back at a future date, unless the time expires and it belongs to him. You can redeem it. So, if it's five hundred dollars, you got to give him. You know, maybe he pays you one hundred and fifty, but he wants five hundred to redeem it. You got to take back five hundred to him. You you take it out of the pawn shop by repurchasing it. Okay, Christ is purchasing us. Okay, uh, uh, by his uh, shed shed blood for ownership to God. It, it is a it is a it is. It's a spiritual transaction, but it's also an economic one. He's buying us out of the slave market of sin. We're all sinners. We're, we're slaves to sin. Uh, he goes and says, I buy that one and that one and that one and that one. And ownership passes from the slave master, the world, the devil, and the flesh, uh, to God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit. Okay? Purchase. He buys us out of that slave market. Okay. 
And when I say this one, that one, and that one, I'm speaking figuratively of all men without distinction. Uh, all of us who've read the New Testament, and I, I know you've read the New Testament, particularly books like Galatians, uh, Paul's epistles, he oftentimes uses uh, the, uh, that notion when he says, neither slave nor free nor men nor women, okay, nor Jew nor Gentile. That those distinctions are gone. In the Old Testament, you had to be a Jew. In the New Testament, that distinction is gone. Okay? So that's what I mean by all men without distinction. Um, let's look at... Um, um, uh, Ephesians 1 7. In him, Paul says, who's the him? Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Okay, say we have redemption. He's purchased us by His blood. That was the price. Comma, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I want to add something here. Trespasses. Past, present, and future. Okay? People have problem with the, my concept of future. But I believe he paid the bill in full. When I confess my sin, my sin, I mean, I continue to sin. Yeah, ask my wife. Um, I don't ask God to forgive me. Because he already has. I thank him for forgiving me. Because of the majesty of redemptive work of Christ, I'm forgiven. Remember on the cross, Christ says it's finished. Paid in full. Okay. Uh, some of you in this room, I suspect, have paid off your homes. Okay. Uh, XYZ Bank or mortgage company, when you pay off that home, they send you the title to that property. It passes from the mortgage agency back to you. You fully own now. Previously, you and the mortgage company owned your house. When you pay the final price, the last penny is paid, they send that, that deed and testament back to you. It's paid in full. Same thing with the redemptive work of Christ. Paid in full. And guess what? That mortgage company the following month in which they have returned it to you, do not send you a bill. Why don't they send you a bill? Because it's paid in full. Okay. You buy something on credit, paid in full, ownership is fully yours. So, I'm just trying to slowly get you to understand the majesty of the work of Christ. Absolute majesty that he paid it all in full. Why am I doing that? 
Well, for a lot of reasons. Number one, to increase your confidence in what he did for you, to increase your worship of him in light of what he did for you, to increase your sense of serving him in light of what he did for you. Okay? Because what he did was absolutely, totally stupendous. Okay, so next time, we're, we're really slowing down, but I think it's important to go slow. Sometimes you have to go slow before you can go fast. So we're, we're the chapter on perfection of the atonement. Okay. Perfection of the atonement. Any, uh, any questions? Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, 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 I understand. It's a, it's a very good question, but keep in mind that prayer was before the cross. Would be one partial answer. Um, and there's also an engagement when we wrong people. Uh, we, you know, we need to cure the wrong. Um, we want other people to forgive us, and so we forgive them. So... Uh, think, think of the verse I just read, not counting their trespasses against them. So I believe in, I believe in confessing sin. Don't misunderstand me. You wrong someone, you wrong God or you wrong your neighbor, you need to, you need to, you know, you need to cure your neighbor or ask for apology, but, um, you know, God's, God's forgiven you. Think of the language. He reconciled us. Doesn't count our trespasses against us. All the concepts of propitiation, reconciliation, ownership, uh, curing the debt. So, yeah. Anyway, it's a maybe a new way of looking at the atonement. But nonetheless, well, I've, I've gone over a couple of minutes, so uh, forgive me for that. But let's uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank thee for the majesty of our Savior, that though he had no obligation whatsoever to come and to subject himself to the vagaries of the cross, even death upon the cross, um, he did so uh, because of the eternal love uh, for his people. Thank thee for curing that liability in God the Son and for applying that cure to our hearts in God the Spirit. In these things we ask for the glory of our great God. Uh, through Christ our Redeemer, amen.